I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. My name is Tiffany Dursey and I will be your host today. I'm so happy today to have in house here Dr. Scott Weiss. Uh, he is going to speak to us about the current situation regarding canine influenza in Ontario, but maybe North America. So we'll see where the conversation goes. Scott is a very busy faculty member, and so we're so excited that he's able to join us today. He's here at the Ontario Veterinary College. Um, he is an internal medicine specialist and the chief of infection control here at OVC. He's also an expert in infectious, in infectious and parasitic animal disease, including rabies, tick-borne diseases, antimicrobial resistance, and emerging diseases. He's the director of the Center for Public Health and Zoonosis. And he's also the author of a really excellent blog called the Worms and Germs blog, which I love to follow. So, uh, so Scott, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And so um, before we get started, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How is it that you became, you know, the director of, of zoonotic diseases and how you're here at OVC? Yeah, well, it's one of these weird pathways, right? As a lot of us have as veterinarians. So I, I graduated from vet school. I, I went into general practice and mixed animals and got to play with everything from, you know, iguanas to calves to cats. Great. And then came back and did a residency and grad degree in internal medicine in, in large animals, actually. So most oh, of okay. that was in horses. As, as part of that, we do research and it was infectious diseases. So I really got kind of that, that interest in looking at various infectious diseases. We started to see some new pathogens emerging. MRSA hit right around the time right. I, I kind of moved into faculty. So after I finished my residency, I, I stayed on here as uh, internal medicine faculty and just worked on infectious diseases. And, you know, the bugs don't care what species they are. They just care True. if they can infect us, basically. So that led into, you know, moving things from one species to another and working at that human-animal interface as well. So most of what I do actually is small animal infectious diseases, because that's where we have most of the, the emerging issues right now. Still do okay. some large animal, do some wildlife, and do quite a bit of back and forth with the human side. You know, this morning I was answering a question from an infectious disease physician in the U.S. about a, an issue with a, a kid and a potential zoonotic disease. So wow. it's one of these pathways where you just find something interesting and you, you keep going and you end up in a strange spot. Yeah, exactly. And so did you ever think that you'd be here doing this? <laughs> no, I don't really, I guess maybe you didn't really think about it when you're a student, right, where yeah. you're going to be, yeah. but uh, not really. It's just one of these, you keep doing something new, you try something new and you realize what you're good at, yeah. and hopefully, and what you like, and it just kind of keeps going that way. And it's one of the advantages, obviously, of being a vet is you've got so many different ways to go. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's part of this podcast is we'd like, you know, people to, particularly our students, to understand that there's so many different pathways and, uh, you know, being serendipitous and seeing where, where life takes you. So, for instance, I wouldn't think I'd be sitting here right now doing yeah. a podcast. <laughs> so, okay, so let's dive uh, or jump right in. Uh, we wanted to talk today about canine influenza. And so uh, what's the current situation? And is this something that we need to be concerned about? Well, it's something we need to be aware of. Like, concerns always say, how concerned should we be? So that's a virus that you know doesn't tend to cause really severe disease in dogs, but it can, and it probably kills about one to two percent. There are a lot of analogies to human flu, where most people that get exposed don't get very sick, but some can get sick. Some can require you know fairly intensive care, and the odd person, just like the odd dog, can die. Mm -hmm. Now. You know, what does that mean for us in day-to-day -day practice? It's really hard to say because, the, like I said, there are a lot of similarities to human flu, but there are a lot of mm -hmm. differences too. So in human flu, it, it's endemic. It's worldwide. It's been here for a long time. We have a lot of different strains that are circulating around, and we have a lot of immunity. 
So you and I, we've been exposed to flu probably multiple times. We've probably sure. had flu a few times. We've maybe been vaccinated a bunch of times throughout our life. And then dogs, it's a different situation because we haven't had canine flu very widespread, you know, really forever. The strain that we're worried about now is an H3N2 strain, but it's different than the human H3N2 and the pig H3N2. It's an H3N2 that's adapted to dogs. And this has evolved in Asia. And what we see is there's disease there, but it spreads out. We've seen it move into North America a few times, and it's a problem in the U.S. right now. It hit Canada a few years ago. We were actually able to eradicate it, which was pretty surprising. So Mm -hmm. right now in Canada, we don't have any evidence that we have circulation of this virus. So it's good for the dogs. The downside of that is, unlike the scenario with you and I, where we've had lots of exposures and lots of vaccines, almost none of our dogs in Canada have any immunity whatsoever. They've never seen the virus, and they've never seen the vaccine. And they might not ever see the virus. But when you've got a population that's got no protection... Mm -hmm. The virus is really, really transmissible. It does what flu does. It gets into a group and it spreads really widely. So we don't really know how far to take some of these preventive measures and these concerns, right? Because it's something that you might not see for a year, five years, or 10 years. It might not ever be anywhere near a dog that we're seeing today, or the dog might meet an imported dog in particular that's carrying flu tomorrow. Right. And then you're playing catch up. So how aggressive are we in preventive measures of things like vaccination when the virus isn't here? Versus how much do we try to contain and then have to play catch up? So if this virus emerges, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away, we've got some time, we've got some vaccine, we can probably protect our local population a bit better, but you never know where that's going to happen. Absolutely. And so in the States, where um, is it isolated to at the moment? Well, it's a good question because it's not tracked very well. So we have a map on Worms and Germs blog where we've been trying to track this lately, and it's pretty sporadic. It's more in the southern U.S., some hotspots in California. The problem is it's not a reportable disease. Ah, And the other problem is, as you know, as veterinarians, we see a lot of cases that come in and they've got kennel cough, right? Kennel Mm cough is caused by a lot of viruses, some bacteria. And our general recommendations are don't test those because it's not necessarily worth the money for that individual animal that we know how we're going to treat. And the diagnosis doesn't really change how we treat them, whether they need antibiotics or not. It's a clinical decision, not a diagnosis decision. So we don't often get a lot of data because you might have a lot of animals that are sick. And we don't know whether that's paraflu or more common cause, it's bordetella, it's something else. Now, if flu is in Ontario, I think we would know because it doesn't just cause sporadic disease, it hits and it hits a lot of dogs. So I get worried when I get a call, okay, we've got a kennel and all the dogs are sick. Okay. It's a well-run kennel, it's a well-vaccinated kennel and they're all sick. That's a big trigger to me that, okay, this might be flu as opposed to breakthrough of something else or one of the viruses we don't vaccinate against. So... In the situation in North America, it's a bit undefined. There certainly does seem to be a lot more flu activity over the last few months. It's always tough battling what's more activity and what's more conversation. Yeah, sure. There's a certain level of disease that's out there all the time. And people start talking about it. You start saying, oh, yeah, my dog had this or that dog had that. You start amplifying it. Mm -hmm. But it really does seem to be there's some issues. There have been outbreaks in shelters in particular. Those are the high-risk situations, not surprisingly. Kennels will see that. Uh, Vet clinics are concerned, too, because when this virus first emerged in the U.S. in 2015, we saw numerous clinics have to shut down because they get a dog and it was infected, and then everyone would get infected. And they need to clear out all those infected dogs before you start bringing in new ones. Otherwise, you get more fuel to the fire. So it's fairly sporadic in the U.S. We don't really know numbers, but we Mm -hmm. do, do know it's in various places. In Canada, we don't think it's here. We think we had our little entrance of it a couple of years ago, and it disappeared. But because we bring in dogs from places where there's flu, there's always a chance of bringing it up. 
So, so from a general practice perspective, is there any clinical symptom um, in practice that would make me think that it is different than, say, our regular upper respiratory diseases, like yeah. cough? So, like, it's not like they have more fevers or they're sicker or it's re- really hard to tell. That's the problem. At the dog level, you can't tell. Okay. Do they have paraflu? Do they have bordetella? Do they Who have knows? canine respiratory coronavirus, pneumovirus, influenza? All these things can be very, very similar. Right. So it's really at the population level I get worried. So there are a lot of dogs in the area that get infected or that it's that really high attack rate. So sometimes we see more reports of kennel cough in the area, right? And this might just be coincidental. It might be that we've got a dog part that's been a focus of paraflu or bordetella. We've certainly right. seen that in the past. So again, it's just figuring out the signal for noise. So are, okay. do we get a few cases and that gets on Facebook yep. and then everyone starts talking Panicking. about the dogs they had versus they weren't talking about them a few months ago. Right. So it's a bit of a challenge, but again, when we see situations where we've got large numbers of cases in a short period of time, especially when you've got a really, really high attack rate, so almost all mm-hmm. the dogs in the shelter or the kennel or the, the doggy daycare yeah. get sick, that's when they start worrying about flu a little bit more and that's where we want to get more testing to see if we can kind of knock it down as early as possible and what is the best test or how do we test well pcr is what we use it's the the most readily available it's a good test as long as the lab can test for the strain we're looking for right now that's not a problem so we do pcr from nasal swabs or pharyngeal swabs is the most useful test um, so if there's any suspicion, then that would be the best bet. Send that off and kind of see what happens. And then uh, obviously isolate. How, how, how about from a, a treatment perspective? Is there, I mean, again, it's a virus, so I guess it's just supportive care. Yeah, it's like anything else. We just isolate them, treat them supportively. Okay. If they get a secondary infection, we'd handle that. But most of these aren't going to need anything more than some supportive care, maybe some cough suppression. Right. So it's really looking at their clinical science and managing that. Small percentage, it's hard to say what, maybe 5%, 10% will develop complications enough that they, they may go on an antibiotic. Okay. And then the, the risk of death from our surveillance, we, we got a pretty good idea of all the cases that came in in 2016 because we were really aggressive in tracking them. And our, our mortality rate was around 1% to 2%. Okay. And it was older dogs. And that's what we expect. If you look at flu in, in people, mm-hmm. who does flu cause the most serious disease? And well, older individuals babies, people that have been immunocompromised. So that's who I worry about, whether it's in terms of isolation, whether it's in terms of vaccination discussions. It's the senior dogs, it's the breeding dogs, dogs with underlying heart disease, respiratory disease, and, right. and brachycephalics. So who's going to be more likely to have a complication from any respiratory virus? That's the group. That's the group. So okay. if I'm thinking about flu vaccines, well, we're, we're not going to use that vaccine to prevent infection completely. You know, the flu vaccines sure. are, you know, they're mediocre but they help prevent from severe disease. So it's those individuals who are going to have severe disease that I'm more worried about. So if you look at my dogs, I've got an 11-year-old dog with chronic lymphoid leukemia. It's on chlorambucil and pred. You know, if we had flu in the area and he had a lot of dog contacts, right. he'd be one I'd certainly think about vaccinating. Okay. Other dog is a crazy four-month-old <laughs> puppy that, you know, if he gets flu, he's going to be obnoxious because he's obnoxious anyway. But he's going to cough and he's probably going to okay. be fine. I'd be less motivated if I just hit him. No, neither one of those dogs is much of a social network. We live out in the country. They don't see a lot of okay. other dogs. The dogs they see are the odd family member periodically. So they're pretty low, low risk, risk for exposure. Okay. So when, when I'm thinking about vaccination for anything, it's what's the risk of exposure right. and what's the risk of serious outcome when it comes okay. to flu. So with both of them right now, the risk of exposure is really, really pretty low. low. And the risk of a serious outcome is split. One okay. is very low, and one is probably getting to the higher side, being an older dog with, with a chronic disease. And that's what we need to think about when we start talking about vaccination. Right. So does the dog live alone, doesn't see many other dogs? Does the dog go to the park 
mm-hmm. but not encountering other, a lot of other dogs? Or is it going to the off-leash park and it's sticking its nose in the nose Everywhere. of a lot of other sure. dogs? Or it's going to daycare? And it's going to daycare where it's not just this group of four dogs that it sees every day, mm-hmm. but it's seeing a mix of dogs. Or, you know, some of those dogs go do fly ball and other things. So right. it's really starting to think about social contacts. Right. And the more contacts, direct and indirect, your dog has, the more the risk of exposure. So the more we need to think about whether vaccination might Good be idea. useful. So, so what about, say, for instance, um, you know, in the, in this area, and especially in the wintertime, a lot of people, you know, are snowbirds or vacation uh, to the south in the states, uh, whether it be Florida or California, Arizona, etc. Um, so what would be your recommendation there with, like, say, for instance, you've got a brachycephalic dog um, going to the southern states. Do you vaccinate for them? Or, again, I guess it depends on the risk. What do they do? Who do they see? That kind of thing. Yeah, that's the challenge. So there's the individual dog risk. Like, how many dogs do they see down there? And there's what's going on in the area. And we often don't know. And, mm-hmm. and that's the problem. We do know a lot of the places snowbirds go tend to have more flu whether that's because there's just more movement around there whether sure. other dog issues we tend to see more issues with large shelters being overstocked in some parts of the southern u.s as well right and, and part of its risk aversion right so right. how you know there's a cost of vaccination it's not great but there's a cost there and some people want that for peace of mind some people are more worried about well you know unless there's a real risk I won't worry about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that dog's risk of exposure, the dog's risk of severe disease. It's how much is in the area potentially, um, how concerned the owner is. You put all all those together. Together. And it's a challenge for us in an area where we don't have flu because you might not have many people that say yes to that. We don't have that many that are traveling and maybe not that many that want want vaccination. Then that's why most clinics don't stock yeah, of course. Yeah, it's and too costly. you yeah. bring in a vaccine just to treat that one animal, and then you have to mm. waste maybe the rest of the vaccine. That that's a bit of a challenge. The other thing we have right now is a vaccine shortage okay. of flu, and that's been an oh, issue for a little while. It's a big problem in the U.S. where they've got a lot okay. of disease and can't find much vaccine. And, and why is that? Do you know, just production issue? Well, or? part of it I think is supply chain, and part okay. of it's demand. Okay. So you start getting like a vaccine that's been a niche vaccine for a long period of time then all of a sudden everyone's talking about it and everyone's trying to buy in vaccine Mm -hmm. just because or because people are worried that disappears pretty quickly so it takes a little bit of time so it does seem to be improving from what i hear in the u.s and canada when we had flu hit in 2016 i think it was there were very few doses we got the number of doses were in canada at the time and i can't remember the number but it wasn't very, Not very many it was yeah. a pretty small percentage of the dog population <laughs> i think we got a couple here and, and they disappear like, <laughs> really quickly so yeah. if you have flu in toronto and someone hears that you know Boom. someone in edmonton yeah. might buy up all the vaccine they can get yeah, even though it's sure. nowhere near and, and then we don't have access to it so okay. it's really a challenge in how we position this as, as veterinarians okay. right because i'm not going to say don't vaccinate sure because you never know um but if we vaccinate a lot of dogs right now, odds are most or all of them are never actually going to encounter the virus. True. Same time, it's a killed vaccine. So we need two doses, you know, a couple of weeks apart, yeah. and we need a little bit of time after that for immunity. So if I know flu is in Guelph, we start vaccinating dogs in Guelph, well, you know, we're, we're looking at weeks before we've got protection there. Okay. So you can't, it's not like you, something you can come in and say, okay, it's here. So now we're going to go yeah. bring vaccinate. We'll control it. Might doesn't be too work late. for this type of virus. Okay. Um, and the vaccine itself, is it um, for the H3N2 or is there cross protection or how does that work? Yeah. So it's like human flu vaccines. We need strain specific. There's okay. very little cross protection probably. Uh, fortunately, we have an H3N2 vaccine. That's a pretty good flu vaccine. This virus doesn't seem to have changed that much as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. So the vaccines we've been using are okay. There is an H3N8 vaccine or combination with H3N2. Um, H3N8 seems to be maybe extinct. It's one we okay. saw in, in the early 2000s and emerged uh, around Greyhound kennels right. in Florida. Yeah. It had been found in, in the UK before in a couple of different places, but it's an equine origin strain. 
it jumped into dogs, adapted to dogs, and it. We were really worried it was going to take off mm-hmm. in North America at that point, and it really didn't. It kind of went into different areas and burned out. And yeah. The good thing about something that's really transmissible is sometimes it'll do that. You'll get this action, and it'll spread really widely, but with a really contained group, and then it then it disappears. Right. So with H three and eight, it was kind of patchy in shelters, mainly in kennels, greyhound operations, and it didn't really do what we thought it would do. And it right. seems to have. You know, Fizz, we can't, we can't find it. Whether it's around anymore, if it's around anymore, it's really kind of low issues. level and not okay. very common. So H3 and 2 is what we want to focus on. Mm-hmm. So for vaccinating, we want a vaccine that's either just H3 and 2 or the combination. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, we want to make sure it's got right. H3 and 2 in it, though. Okay. Uh, and the vaccine protection itself is decent? or It's a flu vaccine, right? Yeah, so it's, so it's okay. Yeah. It's, you, know, it's, you have to remember what we're using the vaccine for, right? Mm-hmm. We're not using a flu vaccine for sterilizing immunity. So right. we'll say you're never going to get infected and you're not going to transmit it. We're using it to reduce the risk of severe disease and reduce the risk of infection and reduce the risk of shedding, all those things really. But it's, it's really best, you know, similar to where we are with COVID vaccines right now. We're using it to protect from severe outcomes and we'll get some benefit for milder infections. We'll get some benefit on transmission, but we're really focusing on preventing disease and severe disease. Absolutely. Uh, now, before we move on, um, I just wanted to uh, take a moment to say that this episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OBC Pet Trust. And OBC Pet Trust is a charitable fund based at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College. Uh, it funds um, groundbreaking research and discovery to improve companion animal health. And in fact, today's guest, Dr. Scott Weiss, is an OVC Pet Trust funded researcher. Uh, and he explores um, uh, different um, uh, different areas of emerging infectious diseases in animals, uh, which is why we're so excited to have him here today. So thank you very much, Pet Trust. Um, so talking more about influenza, um, so getting back to who we're vaccinating, what about, um, you know, police dogs, working dogs, like those ones that, you know, potentially have high, high contact, but maybe, you know, um, aren't traveling to the States, uh, any concerns about that? Well, it kind of comes down to how many dogs are encounter. So some right. police dogs may not encounter a lot of other dogs. Some might. There's also the aspect of if, if they're sick and they're out of work. That could be a bigger impact. You know, if my dog gets sick, he coughs at home. You know, he'll feel miserable. He'll annoy us when he's coughing. He'll probably (laughs) do okay. And he's not really going to impact the thing. If you've got a a police dog or a group of police dogs that are out of action because they're sick, if you've got more competitive animals, animals that have to exert themselves more, then we're we're obviously a little more concerned about them because they might be off off work for a while if they get a secondary bacterial infection in particular so i think again it's the big picture what's what's the risk to the dog mm-hmm. and what's the, in the in the grand scheme so you know a police dog would be that would be one more check in the list of things of you know how much do we want to vaccinate this dog it wouldn't do it by itself but you need to think about again the area what that mm-hmm. dog does so some working dogs won't see another dog Right. Or very rarely, or won't be any different than your general population. Some will. It really mm-hmm. depends on how they're being used in their jobs. If they're, you know, a bomb detection dog and they're working in the behind the scenes in facilities, that's different than if they're a frontline dog that might be out there encountering other... other individuals or might be involved in training exercises with dogs from other units. Okay. Okay. That's uh, that's that's good to know because certainly, um, you know, we do have a lot of working dogs that we deal with here at OBC. Um, so, insofar as um, precautions that we can take, um, you know, general cleaning is is the influenza. Is it destroyed by our regular cleaners in the clinic, or is there anything specific that we need to do? Insofar as isolation, or what would be your recommendation there? Yeah, the big problem is the dog. Like the environment. Yeah. Sure, to some degree, but the big problem, bigger problem, is the dog that put it there. So, okay. the dog 
licks the floor, another dog comes in and licks the floor. Sure, that's a plausible route of transmission, but if them sitting together in the waiting room is a bigger risk. Mm-hmm. So we'd focus on identifying high-risk situations and isolating the animals. So in clinics, again, it's that syndromic surveillance component. We want to make sure we minimize contact. So if someone calls and they've got a dog that's got acute cough, okay, we're going to assume that's flu, paraflu, bordetella, something we don't want in the main clinic. So right. we admit them right into isolation or into somewhere different or we triage them outside. Okay. So it's that syndromic surveillance where, you know, young puppy with diarrhea, acute yes. cough, acute sneezing cat, these things that, that probably indicate an infectious disease. Mm-hmm. We want to get them away from the general population. So that's one of the first things that we can do because the animals that are infected with flu can be shedding a lot of the virus really early. And that's probably the biggest risk. You can never prevent flu entry into a clinic because just like with people, dogs can shed a lot of virus right before they get sick. Okay. So any dog walking in that's clinically normal could be shedding flu virus and could start coughing tomorrow. And we can't do a lot about that. Mm-hmm. That's where our routine practices, you know, hand washing, sure. lab coats, cleaning, disinfection help for the situations we can't identify. But when we can identify them, so I've got an acute cough. And then I think we need to think about situations where we're even more worried about it. So the dog just arrived from Asia yeah, and sure. it's got a cough. That's flu until proven otherwise. You've got a dog okay. coming from an outbreak then obviously there's something infectious there. Those are ones we'd want to get into isolation or a contained area, ideally handle them with a gown and gloves, or at least with something we can change after a different lab coat and the like, and assume that it's highly transmissible until proven otherwise. otherwise. And the same thing when we send them home. So we, we have seen flu go house to house through things like fences. Oh, okay. So in one outbreak we had a few years ago, we were tracking it really well, and we had a dog that didn't have contact with our known dogs, but its neighbor had. Oh, His interesting. was coughing, so okay. it went from went the, the, the facility <laughs> to this dog, and they Jeez. went nose to nose. We've seen a couple instances of that. Again, that's the direct contact. That's not the virus hanging out there. Right. So anytime we can have dog-to-dog contacts. So we've got someone that's got a, a case that might be flu or anything else. We're best recommending they isolate them. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's hard. If they mm-hmm. live in a condo and have to take an elevator down, yeah, do do? it can be really difficult. But you do as much as you can. Sure. You don't use that saying, well, I can't do anything, so... You yeah, know, I can't keep them out of the elevator, so we might as well go to the dog park anyway. No, yeah. so we'll, we'll do the stuff that we can do. We'll isolate them for as much as we can. Flu is a bit of a challenge because they can shed it for a while. And mm-hmm. We don't know how long they're infectious. It's it's a bit worse than paraflu is our more common cause of respiratory disease. Right. And they tend to only shed that for a few days. Okay. So containment of that is pretty easy. With influenza, with H3N2, we've seen it shed for longer than that we've got pcr results and pcr like we know with covid right pcr mm-hmm. positivity doesn't mean you're infectious right but we've seen pcr positivity over three weeks oh wow with flu now it's probably based on what we know now not as high a risk as we would have thought at the point if, you know, there's a little bit of virus okay. there a little bit of rna there it's not enough to be infectious or it's dead right so the risk probably still is within that first week or so okay if we really want to be sure we isolate for a month okay for importing dogs from asia that's ideally what we do we realize most people won't do that sure um so if we can get two weeks Try. that's great yeah. if we can get a week it's probably okay it depends on the circumstances too and the lifestyle and what the person's doing but ideally we would keep them isolated for at least a week ideally two especially from high-risk populations. Okay. Um, and then tell me more. So um, insofar as zoonotic disease goes, there's not a zoonotic potential. But with all this conversation you know, with COVID and, you know, um, viruses jumping, um, any potential for that? Or what? why or why not would an influenza jump from uh, a dog or a bird to a person? Yeah, there's always concern. So it's a flu. It's influ- yeah. we're, we're worried about flu in flu A in animals just because they can 
mix. Right. And we know they can go both directions. So we don't have evidence that this one's a concern right now. Um, but you can't say never. And we do know things can go back and forth. And we see probably more human to dog influenza okay. than dog to human at this point. So we know that, you yeah. know, if I get H1N1 influenza and my dog's coughing three days later, he probably got flu from me. And it's usually oh, okay. mild and it's usually dead end. They don't they don't transmit any further. And as far as we know, people haven't been infected with this strain. We've had okay. a lot of the dogs that have been sick. Now, the, the disclaimer there is, you know, if my dog was coughing and I got a really mild upper respiratory tract infection, it might go to my, go to my doc and say, test me, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, probably right. not going to go to the doctor and they're probably not going to test me for flu okay. with that type of thing. So we, we don't know for sure, but we don't have evidence that it's a significant concern. The thing that's always in the back of the mind is, can dogs be a mixing vessel? Or okay. can the dog flu virus contribute to that? Because if we look at what we're worried about for pandemic flu strains, new flu strains is a mix. So it's something that mm-hmm. can affect people, but it's different enough that we don't recognize it. Our immune systems don't recognize mm-hmm. it. And most often we focus on bird flu right? Uh, and swine flu because these are common. These are species we know. Mm-hmm. These viruses get together. The pandemic flu we had however long ago that was, that was a combination of swine uh, and bird and human flu. Right. So theoretically, the same thing could happen. So, and th- where it would happen is when you've got a lot of human flu going on and you've got a lot of canine flu going on. That's why we want to control it. Or you have a lot of other types of flu. And the H5N1 avian flu that's going on pretty endemically is mm-hmm. a bit of a concern too because we know it can affect foxes right. and our canids. So, you know, the more flus you get in the area, the greater your chance of having two of them come together. Because okay. what has to happen is an individual has to be infected with two different flu strains. And those flu strains have to get together and make a new flu strain, and that spreads on. So what we don't want to have is a dog that's infected with flu, and the owner's infected with human flu, and then the dog gets infected with that human flu as well. Then we're creating that situation. Or the dog has flu, canine H3N2, and it goes and it encounters a bird that's just died of avian flu. Now it's got those two strains together. Where the odds of that happening? Probably really low. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the risks are much, much more likely from lots of other things. But since it can happen and it's flu, that's why we pay attention to it. And, and that's why sure. in Ontario it's reportable. Okay. So if we have a flu positive, the diagnostic labs will let OMAFRA know theoretically very quickly on that. So, so we they can, can monitor. at least figure out what's going on. Ideally, okay. we could do what we did a few years ago is do a lot of testing, isolation, and try to get rid of it as opposed to being in a situation like in the U.S. where it's just continually circulating right so so disease surveillance um obviously has benefits for the canine population but obviously you're monitoring for other species and uh but that's not so complicated it sounds like a huge endeavor yeah and it's tough because there's no money for it too so okay. we don't have any <laughs> we don't i get calls all the time about we've got yeah. respiratory disease here and there yeah does it sound like a concern sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't mm-hmm. um and what do we do well you can test sure but no one's going to pay for that right occasionally i end up paying for it if i find little leftovers money here and there okay. for situations that sound concerning. So an imported dog that's come in or a dog up from the U.S. that's come in and it's got an acute respiratory disease, I'd rather know now than in two mm-hmm. weeks when everyone else is starting to get sick. But we don't have a formal way to do it because it can be very expensive, right? It's how, sure. again, how much money, what's the bank for buck yeah, between right. the surveillance? Like in the, in the perfect world, we would be doing this so we would know what's going on for right. animal health, for public health reasons. You can also spend thousands upon thousands of dollars doing it. So what we really rely on is astute primary care vets and figuring out situations where there's risk and being selective. And that's that's how we picked up flu the first time. So the first case that we've had in Canada of H3N2 in 2000, 
16, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a pair of dogs that imported from South Korea. Okay. So they had just arrived in Chicago. They were driven into to Canada. And the next day, they had respiratory disease. And they went into a, the vet and wow. said, well, this is a different situation, right? This isn't your kennel cough dog. Yeah, this right. is a dog that's you know stressed and it's just been imported. Let's test it. And it was influenza. And that let us get in and okay, isolate them. We did mm-hmm. testing. We really kept that one contained. And then the other one that was a big outbreak in kind of cottage country area was... Um, friend of mine called up one day and said, I've got a kennel that's got, you know, lots of respiratory disease. Yep. You think it might be flu? And I said, well, you know, those are a dime a dozen. Kennel sure. breaks with the respiratory disease and we don't have flu right now because we got rid of it a few months ago. Yeah. And I said, well, it's, it's you know, unusual. It's a, it's a good kennel and they're pretty much all sick. And hmm. I should have clued in more. I would have clued in more now. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, it's, it's interesting. You know, it'd be interesting to see what the test results are, but it's probably not going to be flu. Like, yeah. We don't have flu, and it was flu. Wow. Uh, but it was identification again. And, and there was no link to importation at that point. There was an import importation link. It was brought into a facility that okay. was doing rescues and boarding and daycare and pack walking. And one of those animals came and got fostered in a household, infected a dog in the household, and that dog went into a kennel and infected them all. So we were wow. we were a couple steps behind already, and, okay. but that let us get in and, and try to contain it as much as we could. So right. it's identifying high-risk situations in different situations and focusing our efforts and our money on situations where it you know, makes sense. Your average dog with kennel cough probably doesn't have flu. It could, right, because right? you might not know what the risk is. But if we're going to have limited amount of resources, we're better off thinking about situations where it's more likely it's that transmission component. So we see right. a lot more disease in an area. Okay, let's do a little more testing. We got a kennel that's got a big outbreak. Okay, let's test a couple there and right, see. And, see what's, what's going and on. it's useful for the kennel too. Like I said, for the at the dog level, you know, dog comes in with kennel cough. We're going to treat it based on how it looks. Yep. Not what the test results are. Right. Kennel might be a little bit different because it might impact what we do for vaccination. Sure. It might impact what we do for you know, closing a facility or cohorting or thinking about the risk of transmission. So having the diagnosis can be useful there. Um, and it's a challenge when you've got you know privately owned dog in a facility. So the owner of the privately owned dog doesn't help them at all. Right. right to know what it is helps the facility sure absolutely um, helps public health but doesn't help that individual owner right and when you're telling them to pay the bill yeah yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. So there's no funding a lot for it, of competing so. yeah areas here and that's why surveillance isn't straightforward it'd be nice if we could just say okay we'll we'll bill it to our surveillance fund yeah, but doesn't work those that don't way. exist outside of we research like yeah. we do sometimes with, with with pet trust we do a targeted research and right with flu before we were able to get some targeted money on this and that helps. So Petra supported us on that. So we can say, okay, we can test the next hundred dogs right? or what are X number of dogs and figure out what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Often with that though, we're playing catch up because we don't get funding for looking for situations until you know there's a problem. Right. So we end up trying to you know, wing it together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a little bit of patchwork stuff. And then, but you know, so far, I'm going to rest on our laurels. It's worked so far because we have, you know, mm-hmm. in Canada, the veterinary community is pretty small, which is yes, an advantage which is to good. us. Yep. And we have good communication. And if something happens, yep. you know, we find out pretty quickly. So it does let us get in a little bit, I think, more effectively than in the U.S. where it's a bit harder and they don't necessarily have the same degree of people in different areas right. with interest and willing to get into it. So we probably have a little bit better ability to control it. The other advantage we had when we flew hit before, it was winter. Okay. Um, it's cold. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so less it's contact, a lot e- Yeah, less contact yeah. in parks, and it's a lot easier. Sure. You know, you have to keep your dog inside for 14 days. Right. Not a big deal. Great. Yeah. I, don't I don't have to walk in negative 20. 14 days. Like <laughs> Perfect. If, where we're worried about is, you know, if we had flu that came in in April, right, right around weather's starting to get nice and everyone's wanting that's to tough. go, that's a lot different situation than if it comes mm-hmm. in, in in February in Muskoka when you're not right. going to have a lot of, you know, big groups of dogs getting together outside. Right. Uh, and then um, I've, uh, I've uh, obviously I follow 
follow your Worms and Germs blog, and I noticed on there that you do have the surveillance map. So, um, and you can take a look, and I can see that some of the states that you know have been highlighted that have cases already, and then people. So you were saying that if you get a positive PCR, the lab itself will actually no, notify Amafra. Is in that Ontario, correct? yes. Okay, it's so they don't it's reportable need to, in Ontario. Okay, reportable in Ontario. Yeah. So that okay. we've got a few different things that are different in Ontario than other places. Okay. And it's just the recognition that influenza is a problem, and we sure. want to. It doesn't mean they're going to do anything aggressive. Right. It doesn't mean they're going to go and come a lockdown a facility or anything. It means yeah. we need to so know. So you don't have to be scared. Yeah. And then we figure out what's going on you right. know, with, as, as a way to prevent it. In other places, it's it's different. Yeah, excellent. Um, so with regards to um, canine influenza, any any other interesting facts or anything else that you would like the general practitioner to know? Well, I think it's just a matter of being aware that it exists mm-hmm. and being aware that the situations when it's higher risk. I guess that high attack rate, it's the imported animal, realizing it could be everywhere. Um, and that's why we do the routine infection control. That's what, you know, it's what we don't want to see is someone, and we see these situations all the time where, you know, we bring it in, you don't really realize there's a risk. And then mm-hmm. you start working up the case, you start thinking, oh, okay, something's second. going yeah. on here. Something's and then the next right. day, oh, okay, something's going on here. And then it's all crap. Mm-hmm. Now, what did we do? Where was the animal? What were we wearing? Yep. I was wearing my lab coat and then I went and handled this. And we have seen it spread in clinics in Ontario with our previous one. We saw it go from a dog to a vet's own dog. Mm-hmm. In her household and then back to another dog and then went to an elective spay and things like that so wow. who then spread it out so we can see things amplify in clinics and i think something people don't recognize as veterinary personnel is you know there are things that we can do to protect our own pets and that was a great right. example of that so if you're examining a dog with flu and you're not wearing a lab coat okay, or something yeah. you change just wearing street clothes or scrubs that you wear at home yeah now what do you home you take your scrubs off you throw them on the ground and your dog rolls Comes around in, yeah. them or carries them around the house. Right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And surfaces yeah, are at our greatest risk for it, sure. but it, it's still a possibility there. So yeah, it protects us that. in the clinic and it protects us from tracking things home. And there are a lot of other things. We're talking about flu right now, but there are a whole range of things. True. And this includes stuff like salmonella that you don't want your infant yep. to get. Yep. So these are just good reinforcements of why we do that basic infection control that shouldn't be yep. expensive and shouldn't be time consuming. Yep. It's just that kind of regular culture that we we're doing a lot better on than we were but we've still got some improvements yeah definitely and i think with um coronavirus i think everybody kind of bumped up their ppe and yeah i think at yep. one point i had uh, a mask and i wear glasses and i had my stethoscope on and then i had a shield and some puppy would come underneath it and yep. <laughs> but yeah it's a good awareness that we do need to to be careful about that so yeah, absolutely absolutely okay so um uh moving on from canine influenza uh quick question okay so what is your favorite infectious disease yeah. <laughs> God. Do you have that a favorite? Are you allowed to have ask, a favorite? You answer that because it's often <laughs> something really screwed up, and you think, "Oh, that guy's weird." Sure That's if, okay. I'm not sure if I've got a favorite one. It kind of goes through the flavor of the month, right? Something that we're interested in. Like one of the ones I would guess probably more interested in right now is Brucella canis. Okay. Um, and actually, you wouldn't I'm see at, too much of that. Yeah, I, at, I mentioned that was the the subject of the email I got from a physician in the U.S. today. Interesting. It's just one that we. It's really common in dogs. Okay. Um, it's more it's more common than we recognize we've, mm-hmm. we've diagnosed a few hundred dogs in ontario mainly commercial breeding dogs uh it's a zoonotic disease yeah right, right? we just Scary don't know how I remember the pictures yeah, yeah we don't really know that's the problem okay. we've got lots of dogs we have very very few human cases and is that because it very rarely infects people or it's very rarely diagnosed right because the testing in people is very bad okay we can actually diagnose it better in dogs than they can in people interesting we have a, an antibody test for it that doesn't work in humans and a lot of physicians don't realize that so if you do the antibody test for brucellosis and it's mm-hmm. negative it you've ruled mean. out the food animal brucella but not the dog version oh got it so it's got a lot of interesting dog health issues we're trying to figure out how we can treat it should we treat uh-huh. it a lot of people won't but we 
we will try to treat them here to reduce the risk to the dog and the family. But it's one of these that never has absolutes. So I can treat your dog. I'm never going to say it's Brucella free. You know, what's the risk to the people in the house? Probably really, really low, but I can't say it's zero. Mm-hmm. What, what are the odds we can successfully eliminate this clinical infection? Probably pretty good. There, but there are no guarantees with all this. And we just don't understand a lot of those risks. And the default with that typically has been, okay, well, the easiest way to get rid of a zoonotic disease risk issue is to get rid of the animal. Right. And it's not necessarily not the best one. Yeah. one for the household. So <laughs> yeah. in, in a household sure. where you've got a pregnant woman is different than in a household yeah. where you've got lower risk people. So it brings right. in a whole range of things. So it's, it's a frustrating one to deal with. I but it's imagine. one of these that's um, you know, interesting and one that we need to do a lot more work on. So Great. that might be my pick of the day. Okay, I like it. Uh, and then uh, any current research that you'd like to tell us about or any... Well, we Other do various than, surveillance things. Yeah. We've done COVID surveillance. Okay. We were on that pretty yeah, early. Yeah, right. That was Going really into households, putting all, in yep. all the all the space here at the start, especially. Mm-hmm. We didn't really know anything. We are going to households at the start with people with COVID yeah. and trying to handle the animal with them holding it. That was a bit of a, of an interesting situation. <laughs> Doing something similar with monkeypox, although monkeypox has really right. died down now, so we didn't get okay. a lot. But going into households and trying to look at, again, what's, what's the yeah. animal impact and what's the potential zoonotic impact? Do we infect mm-hmm. animals that could then send it back? We're looking at some emerging diseases. We have some tick-borne disease work that's been going on for a while. Right. Um, it's a virus in cats called Fetchavirus. Okay. It causes outbreaks mainly in shelters, uh, vomiting, diarrhea. We're doing some surveillance on that. And a lot of antibiotic use. We're trying to figure out basically how, yes. to, how to improve our antibiotic use. And that's improve it being not just saying vets yeah. need to use less, which, you know, we need to use less, but we need to use them better. Mm-hmm. So a big focus of mine is, you know, how do we treat patients mm-hmm. more effectively um, using fewer of the drugs that they really need people. Um, I show all the students the first line app that Great. you develop. Yeah. So that's really cool. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's an app. It's a human healthcare platform. Mm-hmm. And it's basically meant to be a really quick reference for antibiotic treatment. So if it's first, you go to firstline.org and you can download the OVC yep. CFAS version for the web or on, yep. on your phone. On and you can app. just click, yep. you know, dog and respiratory and then you'll get pneumonia yeah. and you'll get the treatment options and things about the bugs and things about the drugs yep. it seems to be fairly widely used rating yeah it's great people using it every day so yeah, it, again okay. it's meant to be just that little bit of support and that's really trying to figure stewardship shouldn't be restrictions in my mm-hmm. mind we're trying to figure out how to make it easier for us to do things better and that's i think a pretty useful way to do it yeah i think that's really great so yeah you're you're you're, you're a busy guy you've got a lot of a lot of different things a lot, a lot of, of different stuff. interests yeah. and um we really appreciate that um that you came to speak to us today great thanks a lot yeah so um so thank you to all our viewers for uh, coming here today to listen to us and uh, about canine influenza with dr scott weiss uh and thank you again to our sponsor uh, ovc pet trust and you can check them out uh, online um uh, and also on Instagram. Um, For those that have uh, any questions or any suggestions for vet sessions, you can email us vetsessions at hotmail.com. And please follow us on Instagram at vetsessions. Thanks again and come listen to us soon.